Before we get into the November episode of Always On EM, Alex and I want to give special shout outs to some people who have given us different forms of feedback over the past couple months. Thank you, Tiger26Over, for the awesome review on Apple Podcasts. Also, Billy, who works in our health system, happened to sit down with me and talk about some of the enjoyment she derives from listening to this podcast. I hope you're listening to this episode. Podbean is one of the platforms that actually shares usernames and names with us when people follow us. And so we are able to say thank you, Lokesh Kolhi and Mitchell Fremstad, for following us on Podbean. I know there's many others who are following us on many other platforms. Unfortunately, we don't get your specific names to say thank you, but please know we are very grateful for all of you, for sure. We also appreciate the regions of listeners that are listening. I was really surprised to hear that Seattle, you all are listening to us more than any other city except Rochester. Thank you so much. We are so grateful. Can't wait to come hang out with you sometime in your neck of the woods or wharf as it is. And also, people in the Philippines, in the past couple months, we're seeing such a rise in listenership in the Philippines. And thank you for doing that. I hope we are hitting the mark for what you want from us. Here in the States, we celebrate Thanksgiving in the month of November. And it is a really nice time for us to take stock of the blessings that we have, this being one of them. And as such, Alex and I want to say thank you by giving gifts. In particular, on our Instagram account, we are giving away a free set of Leatherman Raptor Trauma Shears. These are top-of-the-line shears, things that every ED person really is coveting. So please find us at alwaysonem through Instagram to find out the details on how you can enter and win the shears. As always, don't forget to like, comment, and follow us on your preferred platform for podcasts. This really helps our show. Send us emails at alwaysonem at gmail.com or connect on Twitter or Instagram at alwaysonem. Lastly, I got the chance to work with an awesome visiting medical student here in Rochester the other day. Her name is Megan Ostley, and she told me about so many ways that the podcast and other things have improved her life. And one of them was that she loves to dance to the intro music. So, Megan, let's kick it off. Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM Podcast. Hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Welcome to the November episode of Always on EM. My name is Vank Bellamconda. I'm excited to be joined by my awesome co-host, Dr. Alex Finch. Today, we are going to talk about a topic that I'm guessing most of us know very little about, yet we encounter this rather frequently in our practice generalized weakness and lupus uh for us it's a it's a very humbling thing that uh, sometimes we see even multiple times a shift some generalized weakness that's been going on for some time and it can feel a little defeating on an ed shift that i won't be able to to maybe give an answer and that at times to me i i feel like i'm defeated before i even start and so that's why we're really excited about this because there's a lot of EM content about STEMIs and stuff like that, but there are conditions like this where we see people with the diagnosis of lupus or they don't have it yet, and we, we want to learn more about that. 
Our guest today is an incredibly talented rheumatologist here at Mayo Clinic. She has a career interest in lupus and won many awards related to it, including an award for a masterclass on lupus. She's also a decorated teacher in general, winning recognitions from the Internal Medicine Residency here at Mayo Clinic for her clinical teaching and being recognized as Teacher of the Year in 2019 from the Department of Rheumatology at Mayo Clinic. She has authored 28 peer-reviewed publications on a variety of topics, including lupus. She is the one and only Dr. Uma Thanarajasingham. Welcome, Uma, to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I think the work that you've done in this area is incredible. And I also wanted to recognize that you've added to the EM literature. I know you were the senior author on a, on a paper in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings of Quality Outcomes looking at emergency department visits for immune checkpoint inhibitor complications. And so not only are you the expert in lupus, but also ED visits for this. So incredible. <laughs> well, I have to give credit to Dr. Ben Sandifer, who's also my brother-in-law. So we were just like, how can we publish together? <laughs> so it was a convergence of our two interests. So that was kind of fun to do with a, with a family member, too. <laughs> Now, how did you decide authorship? Was there like a <laughs> throwdown like on that? Flip of the coin, you know. <laughs> we're exchanging who's going to watch whose kids. Nice, <laughs> some bartering. I like it. <laughs> Excellent, Uma. How did you get interested in the first place in lupus and autoimmune diseases? Yeah, you know, it it was coincidence, and it was also you know convergence of who my mentors were at the time, but. When I started medical school, I was actually in the MD-PhD program, and so I had a whole plan. I always had a plan, uh, and I thought I was going to be an oncologist. So I actually did my PhD in immunology, and at that time, gene therapy was uh, in vogue. So I was doing gene therapy of melanoma, thinking that I would be an oncologist and researcher. And when I went back to med school after getting my PhD, the clinical practice of hematology and oncology was not what... I envisioned it to be from, from you know, coming from the bench. And so I, I sort of had a change of heart, but I found rheumatologists to be kindred spirits. And with the background in immunology, autoimmunity is kind of the other side of the same coin of cancer immunology. So I found that I was drawn to that kind of academically. And then the patients were, were fascinating to me because of how mysterious they were and how mysterious they continue to be for everyone, I think. So that drew me to rheumatology. And then in my training, I had a, a mentor who was at Mayo at the time, Dr. Tim Newald, and he's a lupus expert. And after seven years, he actually brought me back to the bench in fellowship. So I went back and did some basic science research in lupus, which I didn't think I was going to do, but in my fellowship training. And, and that really brought me to the field. So it was kind of my pull towards immunology and oncology that led me there. And now I also see patients who have these um, toxicities of immunotherapy as well. And so it's sort of like kind of a full circle experience for me in terms of clinical care. So I take care of lupus patients and also patients who have autoimmune toxicities of immunotherapy. So I get to kind of use that oncology background a little bit as well. Before we get into the meat of the show, Uma, can you share a little bit about the etymology of your last name and how you came to find out about it? 
Yeah, it means lion among wealthy kings in Sanskrit, which I don't know if you ever met Dr. Prakash, Udaya Prakash in pulmonary critical care. He retired, but he like wrote the book on like bronchoscopy here at May or something like that. And he was also a scholar of Sanskrit and had a group of friends at Oxford who just studied Sanskrit. And so one day he came back, he asked me what my name meant. And I'm like, I think that there's the word king in there. And then he came back the next day and gave me a post-it and said, this is what my society at Oxford looked Looked up for you, so I believe it. <laughs> That's amazing. So, lion amongst <laughs> kings, lion among wealthy kings. Yeah. So I tell my patients that. that's why I didn't take my husband's last name. It's a pretty good one. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How appropriate is that name? Because we need you to help us become like lions when we're taking care of patients with lupus. This disease, to me, feels very mysterious. How do you feel about it, Alex? I absolutely feel this way. Uma, I'm not sure if you're a, a fan of House, but uh, House MD, the show, I'm sure you get this all the time, but times on my shift, it feels like everything could be lupus and is never lupus all at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And <clears throat> one of our uh, staff, Dr. Clem Mache, who retired but is actually now back working part-time, used to have a slide deck when we taught about lupus, and he referenced House. And um, the, the, the parting <laughs> slide was, it's never lupus. Because <laughs> I think he used to say it always is lupus. But then we've had to, you know, we've had to update it because I feel like the trainees now maybe, unless it's streaming somewhere, people haven't really watched House recently, right? right? So we've right. got to find the equivalent show right now. Uma, you are so much fun to be around. And obviously we could just talk as a group of three for a long time. But we're here for a purpose. So let's get started. Alex, why don't you take us right into the case? We have a 30-year-old female who presents at midnight in our emergency department for fatigue. She struggled to see her primary care physician and the appointment isn't for six months. I'm reading the note from the triage nurse and it says, this is in focal weakness, it's generalized. She can complete her activities of day living, but it's a source of despair for her and she hasn't gotten a diagnosis. I look through the Care Everywhere tab and I see she's been seen in at least three EDs over the last several months. She at one point had a fever and got an entire septic workup that was negative. At one point she had some uh, swelling in a joint and the ED physician tapped the joint and said it isn't septic arthritis and sent her home. And at one point she had some nonspecific chest pain. It seemed like there was some frustration in that encounter. They did an ECG and, and kind of stopped there. They said there was no STEMI. And now the patient's been roomed in my emergency department. And I'm feeling a lot of emotions when I walk into this room. I'm feeling, you know, what can I add to this patient's workup? You know, are they going to be frustrated with me about not, not being able to give them a diagnosis? And I feel as though I'm already anchoring, you know, all my colleagues have tried to solve this problem and haven't been able to. What can I do? And so want to get your opinion. As I start to walk into this room, how can I be better? That's a great question, and and I truly appreciate the difficulties that you all face from the EM perspective when you see these patients in this setting, because the expectations from the standpoint of the patient are so high, and they've been through a lot, and they want an answer. The unfortunate answer that I would have is, more likely than not, you're not going to be able to provide that answer for the patient, because lupus is a complex disease. It can be 100 different diseases in 100 different patients. And I would tell you that in the outpatient setting, when we have an hour with patients and we have so much more data even 
volumes of data that come with the patient or predate a patient, we may still be at that end of the encounter telling patients, I don't know, or I'm not sure, or we have to do more testing. And that's in a very controlled outpatient environment where we've had the opportunity to triage and see these patients. Meanwhile, your setting is very different. And so I would tell you that to kind of give you some sense of reassurance, maybe not reassurance, but say, look, it's okay if you're not going to know what's going on with this patient or you don't give them the diagnosis. I think your expertise comes in being able to tell that patient, this is not what's going on right now. You know, you don't have rhabdo. (laughs) You don't have an active inflammatory myopathy or impending respiratory failure from your muscle weakness that tells us we need to put you in the hospital. Those are things that we rely on you guys for and your expertise. You know, coming to uh, being able to tell the patient, you know, you have lupus is likely not going to happen in your waiting room or your exam room, rather. So that's the first thing I would say. And the other is always to avoid premature closure. You know, so this patient has an undifferentiated presentation, so that's a, a little bit better, you know, not to close on, well, this must be some manifestation of, of her lupus and not to prematurely close on that because more often than not, even in our lupus patients, if they're coming to the ED, it's often for something else. You know, are they, uh, do they have a side effect of them at their medication? Are they septic? Are they sick? So more often than not, it's not their, their lupus, and so to avoid the premature closure. In the end, the patients may still be frustrated with you <laughs> because you're, you're probably not going to give them the answer, you know, but you could tell them there's enough that's been going on for you that you probably need to see someone, <laughs> and those people can help you, but the answer's not going to come right now. The tests are going to take a while. The exam is may need to be more specialized than what we can provide here. We hear you. We think you need to be seen by someone else. Yeah. I, that's probably where I would, you know, start yeah. or end. It sounds like providing validation that we agree something isn't right, as well as empathy for how it's affecting their life. And then if it is true that we can't provide the answer, sharing that gentle truth with the patient will be helpful. Uma, could we take a step back and start even more fundamentally? I have to admit, I don't know what lupus is. Can you help me? Well, um, you know, and I I, I don't, um, I feel you because, you know, oftentimes I sit there and think, do I really know what lupus is? Does anyone know what lupus is? Um, It's a complicated disease, you know, and it can affect up to nine different organ systems in any permutation. So that means it could show up in one organ, one digit, one knee, or it could show up in multiple organs at the same time. And so there is no one unifying presentation. You know, and so people are like, what is the pretest probability that this is lupus? You know, we can't apply that. (laughs) It's very hard to say. But you know, it affects women more than men, you know, disproportionately so, nine to one. And it's uh, a disease that affects uh, people in, in their younger ages, you know, so 35 to 45 years old. So that young patient, that young woman in particular, like this, you know, in the scenario who might be, you know, dismissed, you know, as having chronic fatigue or chronic pain syndrome, they're showing up in your ER more than once. They have a joint that looks inflamed but not septic. You know, someone checked an ANA somewhere and is positive. Well, things are starting to add up. 
to the possibility of an autoimmune disease. That's kind of my general gestalt. Again, it's an autoimmune disease. Almost everyone should have a positive ANA, and it can affect the hematologic system, the dermatologic system, the renal system. So people can present with inflammatory arthritis, a unexplained rash, acute renal failure, and respiratory, cardiorespiratory issues, neurologic issues. So it's hard to kind of give you a one way in which the patient can present. But I would say, you know, a young patient with a constellation of unexplained symptoms and inflammation is someone that you might want to take a closer look at. Would we be making things hard for you if we put a bug in their ear that maybe this is lupus and you need to get this checked out? Or is that helpful? I think that that's in, in your purview. You know, I think it depends on what your what your suspicion is here. If you have a patient who has had a lot ruled out, they're not septic, they're not having a STEMI, but their inflammation markers are high, and you, you really think this, there's something else going on. I think you as EM physicians really have a very good sense when you walk into a room, that's part of your DNA is to say, how sick is this patient and how not sick are they? And um, that patient with lupus, you're going to feel like something is going on. Yeah. I think an EM doc has that. I don't know how to put that into words, yeah. but you look at them and you're like, yeah, something inflammatory is going on. You, yeah. It's true. And, um, you know, we have urgent slots in our calendars here at Mayo, the emergency department, you know, has access to. And those slots are usually pretty well triaged by you guys. I'll tell you that. When we get patients from you in those slots, those are pretty sick patients or they're patients who need to be seen. So you, you guys understand that. And I, I don't know how you, but I think that's part of how you all operate. And so if you see that, high inflammation markers not otherwise explained, maybe a, a younger patient, you know, I think that's reasonable. It's reasonable to say, you know, you need an opinion potentially from a rheumatologist. And is this something that a rheumatologist needs to diagnose or can their family doctor make this diagnosis? I think anyone can make the diagnosis, but I would caution people about that because of how complicated it is. Even our classification criteria, which again are not diagnostic criteria, they're classification criteria. You know, you use that to put people into studies, and so they're not, you know, absolute from the clinical standpoint, but they're complicated, you know, and they rely on first, you know, the presence of a positive ANA and it needs to be of a certain titer, you know, so just a positive ANA alone does not mean lupus. Right? But if you believe in that positive ANA, then you kind of enter into the classification criteria and it's points-based. And you have to move through a set of clinical manifestations that are observed by physicians, not just necessarily reported by patients. Okay. And then uh, it also takes into account laboratory data. So that already probably is more involved, I think, than realistically, a primary care provider can move through in the very limited time that they have and even in the time that you have. So it's not to say that someone couldn't apply it, but do you have the bandwidth to do it, I think is, is, is probably why it should be in the hands of, of, of a specialist. Along those lines, I was going to say there's some laboratory criteria you brought up. If we have an index of suspicion for a patient and we want to help move them along, are there tests we could order to help you or are we just going to hinder you? I think the understanding that those tests will not likely be back, even at a larger institution that has a good turnaround time, most of the autoimmune lab tests 
take about 24 to 48 hours to come back, you know, under the best circumstances. Um, but if you're thinking forward to, you know, helping out your local neighborhood rheumatologist, then yes, you know, I think basic labs are helpful when someone is coming in complaining of, of symptoms, you know, because if they're coming in and saying, I'm feeling weak, I feel so fatigued, and you check their CBC and their SED rate, their CRP and a muscle enzyme and their stone cold normal, that's helpful. But it's also helpful if they're abnormal, right? So basic labs are important. What are basic labs to a rheumatologist? To a rheumatologist? Yes, yeah, exactly. that might be different from you guys yeah. <laughs> for an EM doc. But for us, a CBC with a differential is helpful because of the cytopenias and the lymphopenias that can be seen in lupus. A CRP and a SED rate are, are both helpful a creatinine and a urinalysis with a microscopy. The microscopy can, you know, help us look for any dysmorphic red blood cells that can point towards a nephritic process or any kind of proteinuria that could be estimated from that. That helps us with the renal component, which could be largely asymptomatic for some patients. Those are our basic labs, um, very basic labs in um, from the rheumatologic standpoint. And then with the question of lupus that comes up, you know, if the patient has not had an ANA test because it's an entry criteria for lupus and you're asking a rheumatologist, it would be helpful to check the ANA if possible by immunofluorescence. So it's on the HEP2 substrate um, if that's available to you. That's a little more specific for us. Is that a separate order, like a specific order? Yes. So there's two ways, at least within Mayo, to order the ANA. You know, there's the cascade or the screen, which checks the ANA by a automated method called the ELISA. So you get a whole number out of it, you know, zero to 12. It's faster. Um, and so we generally recommend that, you know, first pass test. But if you're really sending a patient to a rheumatologist and you have the option, if you can check it by immunofluorescence, which gives the titer and even the pattern of the ANA, that from a lupus expert standpoint, it would be the most helpful because oftentimes you can see a weak positive ANA by ELISA and uh, comes back negative by the immunofluorescence. Other markers of lupus disease activity are tests called the double-stranded DNA and complement C3 and C4. So if you're asking about lupus-specific tests... I'm getting night, like, yeah. nightmare flashbacks yeah. right now to medical school. And <laughs> but I same. Mean, yeah. Same. This feels like med school. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing is, they're not going to help you in, in the moment, right? And so I think, you know, busy shift and you're trying to move people through. I mean, if you don't get those, we, we never fault anyone for not getting those specific tests. But, but it, it is helpful like to know. I could create an epic panel mm -hmm. so that in these situations where my tingly sense is going off that there's something autoimmune, maybe I can have these pre-packaged for myself. Yeah. And, and, and you know, because the double-stranded DNA and complements can fluctuate with lupus disease activity, you know, capturing those in an acute moment can be helpful to us. Better yield. Yeah. Yeah, better yield. I mean, the other antibody tests, those can those can wait. That's incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. In fact, I didn't know that ANA came in a different types. Yeah, like, yeah. And in the classification criteria, you need to have an ANA, you know, titer of 1 to 80. You know, it's a dilution factor. So we're basically taking someone's blood and diluting it over a substrate of nuclear antigens. And then if that patient has antibodies that see those nuclear antigens, it lights up. And some human is looking under the microscope to see what does it keep lighting up and you keep diluting the blood. Okay. And so however 
the the biggest dilution that can be found that you can still see the blood lighting up is what is reported. A question I have along these lines is the opposite. A primary care doctor drew an ANA and now the patient's in my ED, they have a fever. Do I just say, I see there was a positive ANA, this is probably just lupus. How do we interpret the fact that that test may have been drawn, there hasn't been any follow-up on it? Do we, at that point, just say, easy, diagnosis made. That's a great question. So I give, I've also given talks on the perils of the positive ANA. (laughs) (laughs) Because the ANA, you know, is, is an important entry requirement to think about lupus, but the presence of a positive ANA in and of itself does not mean lupus. You know, any, if you, depending on the study you look at, 10 to 20% of the normal population could have a positive ANA. You could have a positive ANA because you have um, a history of Hashimoto's thyroid disease. 45% of those patients could have a positive ANA. Certain medications that you're on, your family history. You know, one take home for me would be don't close on a positive ANA. They came from their PCP and someone had checked and you saw the positive ANA and they're in the ER for uh, fever, I wouldn't close on that ANA. I would rule it, do what you guys do for the fever before attributing much to that ANA. This is Venk jumping in. After the interview, we went and looked up some of the differential for a positive ANA. The differential includes systemic autoimmune diseases like lupus, as we're talking about, both active and in remission, as well as scleroderma, rheumatoid arthritis, Sjogren's disease, and others. Also, organ-specific autoimmune diseases, like Dr. Thanarajasinghe mentioned, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, Graves' disease, autoimmune hepatitis, and even primary biliary cirrhosis can have a positive ANA. Also, some infections, particularly the viruses like EBV, HIV, HCV, and parvovirus are listed, and then some bacteria, um, particularly hepatitis and syphilis, have been associated with positive ANAs. There are some cancers, particularly perineoplastic syndromes and lymphoproliferative diseases, and then other inflammatory bowel diseases, and then even pulmonary fibrosis. There's even reports that one person's ANA can be elevated because their family member has autoimmune disease, and that ANAs can be elevated in anticipation of developing autoimmune symptoms, even by months to years. So a positive ANA alone really has a very broad list of potential causes. Let's jump back into the interview. Dr. Thanarajasingham, when you're thinking about a differential for a patient in front of you who has a variety of symptoms that have changed over time and span multiple organ systems, what is that differential? What is your differential when you are considering lupus? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's conditions within the realm of rheumatology, and then there's conditions external to that, you know, um, you know, within rheumatology, even before we close on lupus, we have to think of other causes of the patient's symptoms, you know, could it be rheumatoid arthritis? Is this a different connective tissue disease like Sjogren's or is this an inflammatory myopathy? Is this a and then outside of rheumatology, we think about what else could this be? You know, is this truly inflammatory or not. You know, if it's not inflammatory, then we start thinking more about, and if pain and fatigue are the manifestations, things like fibromyalgia or central sensitization syndrome. Or could it be something else? You know, someone's coming to you with cytopenias uh, that are progressive. Is it something primarily hematologic? Is this a rash? Is Could this be a drug-induced lupus? And then, of course, you know, is it an infection and is it a malignancy? 
it's very broad. And the way the way we approach it is probably depending on the setting in which we see the patient. You know, so if we see them in the outpatient setting, they've had a lot of workup. It tends to be more working through is this the different differentials within rheumatology. When we're in the hospital and it's an undifferentiated process, you see us thinking and calling on, I think they call them the three horsemen. So if, if you have a hematologist, an infectious disease doctor, and a rheumatologist all together consulting on a patient, then that's a pretty undifferentiated presentation and we're all trying to think through it. I love it. The three horsemen. I don't know. I've a resident, I think a resident when I worked with, <laughs> I don't know. Have you heard, have you heard that wonderful. before? It's like, oh no, we've I had haven't. to call them in. <laughs> it's never it's probably never a good prognostic sign. <laughs> I think we've talked a little bit about how challenging the diagnosis can be, and I've talked about a little bit about the pitfalls of trying to make that diagnosis in the ED. But let's talk about a patient who comes in with known lupus and go through a couple common chief complaints we see and how things would be different in this case. One of my favorite complaints in the ED, because I feel confident, I know what I'm doing, is chest pain. I, you know, I have my differential I'm going to work through, but as I was preparing to, to meet with you, I saw there were several things on the differential that I would never consider. Would you share with us what we might consider in a, in a patient with chest pain with a history of lupus? Yeah, so the kind of cardiopulmonary complaints that we, or conditions that we can see in lupus include pericarditis, which, you know, you guys are really good at diagnosing, and of course, serositis, so plural pericardial effusions, and, and hopefully those are not generally uh, diagnostic um, dilemmas. Costochondritis, you know, that's a, it's a slightly more difficult one, and pleuritic type chest pain are also common complaints, can be seen uh, in lupus, but of course, other more dangerous, life-threatening issues need to be um, ruled out first. And then, you know, many patients with lupus can have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And so that increases their risk of arterial and venous thrombosis. So they can present, you know, with PEs, uh, sometimes MIs and other issues that can cause and or manifest as, uh, you know, car cardiopulmonary symptoms. So if they do have a concurrent diagnosis of APS, then of course that needs to be considered because they can still clot even on anticoagulation if they've not been compliant with it, for example, or they've had fluctuations uh, in their INR, for example. So those are things that would come to my mind from, from the standpoint of a lupus patient with chest pain. I had heard that lupus should be considered as much a risk for acute coronary syndromes as diabetes. How yeah. do you feel about that? Yeah, so there are you know, a lot of data um, you know, in the general world of rheumatology about, you know, chronic inflammation and, and risk for cardiovascular events. A lot of that data has come out, out of Mayo, too. A little more depth for that from the uh, rheumatoid arthritis world, but also emerging from the lupus world. And the general concept is patients who live with chronic inflammation are at risk for uh, accelerated atherosclerosis. And so that's true, you know, generally speaking. I don't know if we're to the point to say that, that lupus is a, a equivalent disease to diabetes in terms of its risk for uh, poor, poor outcomes from the cardiovascular standpoint, but it's certainly a consideration. And actually, you know, at Mayo, there uh, is a cardiorheumatology mm -hmm. clinic. Seriously? Uh, so we have cardiologists okay. interested 
in rheumatology and in our patients in particular and, and what their risk is from the standpoint of outcomes and, and risk factor modification. So it's a it's a growing field and an important one to remember. So that young patient that comes in, you know, you're like, this the patient's fine, you know, they, they have some lupus, but they were running a marathon the other day, but that could be an MI, you know, still. I also read about something called Liebman-Sachs endocarditis, oh, yes. and I didn't know what that was or how I would even test for. That is a manifestation of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, so non-bacterial uh, endocarditis. So someone presenting maybe with chest pain, and then you, uh, if you do a bedside echo, you might see a vegetation, uh, oftentimes, most oftentimes on the mitral valve or a flail leaflet. Sometimes it's more of a suggestion. And of course, then the first thing you have to rule out is infection. Okay, this is Venk. I'm going to jump in here with some post-interview information on Libman-Sachs endocarditis. So looking at this a little bit closer, Libman-Sachs endocarditis, it turns out, is one of a few different conditions that fall into a category of endocarditis known as non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis, or NBTE. Most of these are asymptomatic, and generally the literature comes from autopsy series. There are some observational studies, particularly in lupus patients. These studies suggest that on TTE, or transthoracic echocardiography, the rate may be about 5 to 10% of patients with lupus might have this condition. When you start looking at TEE, or transesophageal echocardiography reports, um, that rate goes up substantially. In terms of symptoms, in general, these patients are asymptomatic, that you might hear a cardiac murmur, which might prompt further investigation. Fever generally isn't common with this form of endocarditis because, again, it's not an infectious form. When symptoms do occur, it tends to be related to emboli, rather than the actual endocarditis itself. In terms of common sites for embolization, look for spleen, kidney, skin, and limbs. There can be symptoms like hematuria or rashes or ischemia of a digit, for example. Earlier, we talked about how about five to 10% of patients with lupus might have non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis. When we look at patients with NBTE, and look at their associated conditions, most of the time it's associated with advanced malignancy, less commonly associated with autoimmune diseases such as lupus, but that is the second most common. Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, as Dr. Thanaraja Singham mentions, is also one of the associated conditions, as well as rheumatoid arthritis, and then burns, interestingly, have an association with this as well. The exact initiating factor for why this is happening is still yet to be determined, but some of the thought is that endothelial injury associated with hypercoagulability are the two ingredients that come together to create NBTE. There are some other circulating cytokines that are mentioned in the pathogenesis of this that truthfully go over my head. The actual vegetations in NBTE are really thrombus interwoven into strands of fibrin. The vegetations can really vary in size and they can affect even healthy valves. In terms of treatment, the approach generally starts with treating any underlying conditions like malignancy or lupus. And then instead of antibiotics, the mainstay of medication therapy really relates to anticoagulation. There aren't any defined protocols, but surgical intervention is 
sometimes considered for this. In general, the prognosis that I found documented for this is not very good. Okay, let's jump back into the interview. But the, you know, from the standpoint of an emergency med physician in that lupus patient with known antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, what we fear, you know, from the rheumatologic standpoint is catastrophic antiphospholipid antibody syndrome or CAPS, which is clotting in multiple organs, which can happen within the course of, you know, hours, days, and weeks. So that is, you know, um, an emergency from the rheumatologic perspective. So someone with APS and, you know, they maybe were found to have, they were having TIAs and then maybe they, they had DVT, a PE, and then maybe a renal infarct, you know, so they're picking up arterial or venous thrombosis in multiple organs. These are very sick patients. I've uh, never heard of that. Yeah. So we see that in the hospital, you know, a few times a year. Mortality is high and we just throw the kitchen sink at these patients in terms of immunosuppression. Uh, that could be an initial presentation. You know, why is this patient having strokes and multiple vascular dis- distributions or why yeah. are the DVT and now a PE and now this infarction in a lupus patient? That's something to think about. Might, might fall in on your plate. And what medication? should we consider giving? Well, they need to be on anticoagulation right right away uh, if safe, but oftentimes, you know, there's you know, there's other th- factors that could make that difficult so they're um, they're very sick patients. You'll see us pr- profoundly immunosuppressing them, so pulse dose steroids and uh, sometimes we even use IV cyclophosphamide, plasma exchange. So those are all things that usually happen in the ICU or on the floor. Maybe uh, from our floor. end probably if we did stress dose steroids the problem with catastrophic APS is it's usually set off by something. So patient could be walking around with lupus and known antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, doing pretty well, you know, taking their meds and their anticoagulation, but maybe they got uh, an infection or they had major surgery that kind of sets off this um, hypercoagulable cascade. And so in that setting, it can be hard to manage, you know, if they're often septic and they're clotting at the same time, you you might see the situation where they're getting steroids and antibiotics at the right. same time. Yeah. We, we live that with COPD that, yeah. and so many other conditions. <laughs> right. We have to walk that line. Have you ever heard of this, Alex? I, I haven't. It, it's interesting. It almost sounds kind of like a DIC presentation where there's, you know, I'm, we're having inappropriate uh, fibrin depositions and it sounds like they might also... Uh, be at some risk for bleeding and clotting, a very challenging diagnosis to make. Right. I mean, in, in lupus patients, one of the organ systems involved in general is the hematologic system. So patients can have, <clears throat> can be anemic, they can be thrombocytopenic, um, and that can also be difficult when you're trying to anticoagulate them. A lot of complexities in that care. I'm just, uh, I'm in awe. <laughs> uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm thinking these are sick patients. Yes, you know, and I mean, I, I think the challenge in rheumatology in general and with lupus patients is that it's the full spectrum. Um, you know, thankfully, for the most part, you know, the patients we see, we, we see in the ambulatory setting, you know, it's rare, you know, it's rare and not uncommon at the same time for them to come to the emergency room. You know, when they do come to your to your steps, it's a difficult process to say, is this a flare? Is this um, or is this something else? And, you know, Vink and I were talking a little before this that I think, honestly, where our science is right now and, and with the complexity of the disease, the best, you know, we can hope for and what we are most grateful for as rheumatologists is if you help us rule out the things that are going to kill the patient um, that are most imminent. And we totally get if it can't be known, you know, that it was a flare 
uh, or not. And I don't think I ever see a patient who might have been flaring, who's been in and out of the ER, where I've been like, I just can't believe they did not figure out that that was a lupus flare. Well, thank How you for the benefit of the doubt. I, I really, I mean, I, you know, I just respect the complexity of our patients and their presentations, and um, and oftentimes we don't figure it out either. You know, not until we get to see the patient back several times over, or or do more investigation in the outpatient side. If a patient, because I have had some instances where patients tell me this feels like my lupus flaring, mm-hmm. and I say, I trust you. Mm-hmm. I have. I don't know this disease well enough, so in the end, I will trust your judgment. Um, and I, of course, rule out everything else. Yeah. What medications can I offer them in an acute flare if we knew that this is a flare? Yeah, and I, I agree with that approach. I take that approach with my patients, too. You know, there's some people who have lived with this disease for 20-something years. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever dealt with anything chronic or, or uh, as a chronic illness, but you know, yourself, but you do start to learn your your body. And I think we, I respect, I've come to respect that uh, about my patients. You know, so there's circumstances where patients call me and say, look, doc, this, this is my lupus. This is my lupus flaring. Yeah. I had to do a lot of that during the pandemic when we couldn't see people, you know, in person. And so, yes, uh, you know, I think that uh, if the suspicion is there and the patient supports that, other things have been ruled out. Oftentimes it's fair, one, to ask the patient, what helps you during your flares? A lot of these patients will know, you know, so actually getting some shared decision making is very reasonable and they will just tell you, you know, I usually take, you know, X amount of prednisone and, um, and, and that has helped me and I think that's reasonable. You know, uh, and for the most part, you don't need to use whopping doses of a steroid to knock people back into remission. You know, if they're having coming in some inflammatory arthritis and a rash, you know, putting them, if they can be on, um, you know, a moderate dose of prednisone, 20 milligrams, and outline a defined taper over the course of a week and a half and get them to their primary or the rheumatologist, I think that that's reasonable. When should Alex and I be thinking that a patient needs to be admitted? Yeah, I mean, I think you're the experts on that. I, I and I, I do get calls, you know, sometimes uh, if I'm covering our consult service, you know, saying should this patient be admitted, and you know, this might just be my lack of experience or not having done inpatient medicine for a while, but I tend to say you guys know better than me, you know. Uh, generally speaking, if someone has coming in with you know new onset. Um, kidney failure, uncontrolled hypertension as a result of that, you know, um, and sudden and new dramatic cytopenias. Um, Those are things that, you know, if they showed up on our outpatient practice, and we'd be thinking, we need to send you back to the ED, you know, those are patients that likely would benefit from, um, from admission, you know, because if you think about they need IV, I'm thinking that these patients might need IV steroids um, or uh, a biopsy, and you know, uh, acutely. Then, then those are patients that might need to go in. But I, we don't have a set of criteria that we use. It's really a um, a clinical um, assessment uh, based on all the data you have. And I think I think ER doctors are way better than that than we are. Well, thank you for the confidence, <laughs> of course. <laughs> We had talked a little bit about organ systems. We talked about chest pain, and you mentioned renal dysfunction. I'd love to hear more about that because uh, I'm always seeing a little bump in the creatinine here or there. 
how might I approach uh, a patient with a diagnosis of lupus where I see there's a, a small AKI? What do I need to do to treat that patient safely? It's difficult, right? If they're coming in and um, and you're wondering what's going on uh, from the standpoint of their uh, kidney function or dysfunction. Obviously, any new uh, renal failure, you know, if they were completely normal at baseline, suddenly big, big uh, jump in their creatinine and, and they are presenting with hypertension. A urinalysis is the first step, you know. Uh, what's going on? Is there any kind of glomerular, you know, con- concern for a nephritic process? Um, is there a vast amount of proteinuria that is new? And if all of this is new, um, again, that's still a gray area, you know, with do they need to go to the hospital or do they need urgent outpatient follow-up? And, you know, with all the challenges of getting people beds in the hospital, I, I don't know the answer to that anymore. You know that better than I do, but that that's usually the patient that should be seen more urgently uh, by a nephrologist and if they have lupus, uh, known lupus by a, by their rheumatologist as well. But lupus can affect the kidneys, you know, uh, typically causing different um, forms of glomerulonephritis or a membranous type of process. So they can come in with like anasarca, it looks like minimal change disease, but that can be a type of um, uh, lupus affecting the kidneys as well. Usually it's a biopsy that, that cinches the diagnosis. So again, not something that's going to come from the ER. Um, well, Alex does ultrasound-guided biopsies of the kidney. Does he? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. In- intentionally. Uh, I just added it. Yep. I just- <laughs> he took a weekend course and he got yeah. some CME. Online, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really key if it's unintentional to send it for path and confidently say, yep, that's what I was intending to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Are, are these patients with bumps in their creatinine sometimes... Is steroids the treatment for them too, or? You know, I, it, it could be. Typically people who have known um, active nephritis, either they need to be on stronger immunosuppression um, uh, or they, um, you know, maybe, maybe a course of steroids to settle things down a little bit. Uh, it really depends. You know, the nef- there are patients that we work up as an outpatient setting over the course of weeks, and we suspect nephritis, but things are stable otherwise. You know, so they don't. They may not need to be in the hospital, but if they have normal creatinine, and they come in, and you know, their electrolytes are off, and it's not looking good, and they're close to needing dialysis. If you're thinking you're looking at that, then that patient needs to go in because we could actually save them from potentially needing dialysis if it was you know, um, a component of lupus nephritis, because those patients do respond to immunosuppression acutely. Yeah. I always have more questions. One I will ask, since we're kind of going through systems, one of the most common ED presentations is abdominal pain. And I, I read also that many patients with lupus have GI manifestations and may come in with abdominal pain that isn't due to the Appy or uh, something like that. What kinds of things might cause uh, a patient with lupus to have discomfort? That's a great question. And, um, you know, actually, if you look at how lupus affects the body, GI manifestations of lupus are not true lupus, are not that common. Um, uh, you know, patients who have lupus present to the ER, you know, it, it seemed, you know, based on some studies with with GI symptoms, but is that really a manifestation of their lupus or something 
else. And I think in my clinical experience, it generally is something else. You know, um, is it a medication uh, effect? Is it a a viral etiology? Um, So more often than not, I would say this isn't their lupus um, because it, in true lupus manifestations in the GI tract are, are relatively rare. And, you know, oftentimes if there's some component of hepatitis, patients are asymptomatic from that. You know, um, there can be um, pancreatitis, autoimmune pancreatitis could be a manifestation, but very rare, rare manifestation of a rare disease. So I think in general, in my experience, um, GI manifestations of lupus acutely are, are quite rare. So we could have our standard pathways for abdominal complaints and probably not miss much. I would agree with that. Okay. Yeah. Wonderful. And then you've mentioned. So that, basically, oh, they have a positive ANA at some point in the outpatient visit, and uh, another there with abdominal pain. Don't don't work it up. It's probably lupus ab- lupus abdominal pain. <laughs> Just give them some pulse dose steroids and exactly. send them home. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. you know, I do steroids. Maybe we start oh. cellcept on that patient. Like. <laughs> After we biopsy the kidney. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you've mentioned medications a few times. Mm-hmm. One of the things I remember struggling all through medical school, and I still don't fully get, mm-hmm. is how SLE varies when we think it's medication related. And can you help me understand anything about that? To be honest, because <laughs> I don't understand anything. You, like drug-induced lupus yes, versus exactly. more true systemic lupus? Yes. You know, that's a challenge. Um, it is. It really is, even for us. Um, and, and that is because drug-induced lupus does not necessarily just come on kind of like a, a drug rash right after you start taking the drug. It, it could, okay, but it could also show up weeks after. Okay. And there's so much overlap between um, drug-induced lupus symptoms and systemic lupus symptoms. You know, there's a few things that maybe distinguish it. Drug-induced lupus does not tend to affect the kidneys. It tends not to affect the central nervous system. Drug-induced lupus can tend to manifest as a lot of inflammatory arthritis, serositis, and rash. But true lupus can do that too. Um, We used to have a test that we ran at Mayo. It's currently offline because of issues with operating characteristics called the histone antibody. Antihistone antibody is present almost universally in patients with drug-induced lupus. So not, you know, over 90% of patients can have that be present but we're not testing for it right now, so that that diagnostic tool has um, is not you know in our in our um, toolbox at present. But you know if there's a strong association, there's a list of you know drugs that could be associated with drug-induced lupus, um, and there's a you know it's been it was started you know around that time, and then the drug was stopped and symptoms you know abate. Then of course that helps us. But it, I think it, it would be hard to to make that call um, in the ER type of setting, you know, for sure. That's helpful. Mm -hmm. And so if I heard you correctly, getting rid of the potential offending agent would be one of the hallmarks of the treatment? Yes, so generally stopping the drug. Overall, you know, those symptoms should abate within six to eight weeks. What we see is 
you know, there's a big bell curve around that. Um, and it can take longer. It can take, you know, six plus months. And um, that makes it even more difficult diagnostically. And some of those patients do need to be suppressed from the uh, uh, standpoint, uh, meaning they need steroids or immunosuppression to kind of really knock down that process. Yeah. And Alex, when you are starting like phenytoin or hydralazine in the ED, are you mentioning this as a potential effect? Because I, I have to admit I have not been, and maybe I should be. That is a, a universal part of my discharge instructions with every med. <laughs> I include, I, this is actually part of it. Uh, no, I, you're exactly right. I have not not uh, not been doing that. What would be the most common meds I'd be worried about causing this? Um, yes. Yeah, so I mean, classically, you know, what you just listed, some anti-epileptics like phenytoin and um, hydralazine, um, very commonly used medications um, have been associated with drug-induced lupus, uh, rarely like omeprazole. Um, and oftentimes people can get a cutaneous eruption that looks like cutaneous lupus. And um, these are really rare events, though. So, you know... It's it's falling under like the one percent kind of uh, risk, so likely not part of what you would verbally say to a patient. So I'm not a terrible doctor no. for not having mentioned any of these things for years. No. <laughs> I don't. You're think so, so kind. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You touched on cutaneous findings. Mm-hmm. Do you mind? I I think that rash is one of those things that. I struggle with in general outside of lupus. Now we're mixing autoimmune diseases and rashes. I'm absolutely going to fail. <laughs> Help me with rashes yeah. in this. Well, um, there are whole textbooks that are written about lupus rashes. So get yeah. to reading. <laughs> uh, you know, and I think, and my husband's a dermatologist. He's a medical dermatologist here. So he sees a lot of uh, cutaneous manifestations of rheumatic disease. And um, it's tough. I think it's tough even for us as rheumatologists to distinguish one type of lupus rash from another type of lupus rash. So I think, and lupus rashes can look like a drug eruption, they can look like tinea. <laughs> they can look like a sunburn. It's not just the cheeks that we see. No, see yeah. Sunburn. I mean, the classic malar rash is erythematous distribution across your cheeks and nose, and the teaching is it spares the nasolabial folds. And my one teaching pearl for you know our medical students and residents is, is if you see telangiectasias, you know, on someone's face, and it involves the nasolabial fold, that's probably more rosacea unlikely to be a lupus rash. And the lupus rash can also feel red, warm, and indurated. So that's kind of classic malar malar rash. Okay. So I'm Um, giving them antibiotics. (laughs) I'm telling them they have cellulitis across their face. Cellulitis. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I think it's a hard, you know, hard assessment to make. Uh, uh, And my husband may... may, uh, um, wince when I say this, but take advantage of the pictures that you can take in the ER and send them to your friendly local dermatologist, um, or at least take the pictures and leave them in, you know, in the chart um, so that someone can look at them, you know, uh, uh, in retrospect. Yeah. Because for us, classification of lupus, you know, even these lupus rashes, they should be observed by a physician. 
Um, and so, of course, by the time patients get, get to us, they often, the rash is gone, you know, it's the therapeutic trip to the doctor. Um, so having that picture um, there, either you guys take it or have the patient document it is helpful. Right. I often will have the patients use their own cameras and just take pictures of all these things every day. And yeah. <laughs> it helps me feel like I gave them something. <laughs> but I think that, that it is helpful. Yeah. You know, sometimes people show me things and I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. You know, that that was quite significant, you know, a week ago and now it's gone. And right. so we, smartphones do help sometimes. Oh, it's amazing. Yes. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about some drugs that can cause uh, a lupus-like syndrome. But what about the most common drugs that a lupus patient may be on? I feel like I'm not I'm not really in tune with the side effects or or complications that may result in an ED visit from those. Yeah, I think the general principle is um, immunosuppressive. They're they're on immunosuppressive agents, and most of the medications are the same medications that we use in the world of transplant. So, you know, and you guys may see transplant patients maybe more often than you see a lupus patient, but those meds are the same meds that we're using for the most part, or the principles of those medications are, and the side effect profile are are applicable to our patients. So I think you probably do have more experience with our meds than you give yourselves credit for. But, um, you know, we use mycophenolate or Celsept, azathioprine or Imuran. Uh, you might see the patients on those medications. So the side effect profile is basically increased risk of infection, sometimes cytopenias too, um, uh, that could become symptomatic for those patients. One pearl is almost all our lupus patients will be on hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil. And that's a very mild medication, right? Mild immunosuppressive medication. You'll see it on their med list. It is unlikely that that medication is causing or driving their sepsis. And in fact, you'll see us continuing patients on their hydroxychloroquine throughout their hospital stays for you know, whatever they're in for, even their pneumonia, because of how mild it is, but it does kind of work in the background of the immune system. A patient of lupus kind of like, you know, those those vacuums that just clean up the dust, you know, the robotic vacuum is kind of the, my, my analogy, but they're very mild. Um, so if they come in with that and they're sick, I wouldn't point necessarily to the hydroxychloroquine, the Plaquenil, but any of our other medications are strong immunosuppression. Suppressants like methotrexate, mycophenolate, azathioprine. There are some newer biologic medications too um, that have been on the market. Uh, uh, Benlista, Benlimumab. Actually, it's been on the market for longer uh, than I can. Uh, that, so it's not technically new now. Another called Safnello, um, and um, Safnello is uh, targets the interferon pathway. Interferons are important for fending off viruses. So patients may come to the ED with zoster. Um, and so that's something to think about for those newer medications. Um, it, during the pan, you know, the meat of the pandemic, I had a patient who overdosed on hydroxychloroquine. Oh. And um, it was incredibly striking, the lab abnormalities and mm. things that came from that. But I'd be curious, just as an aside, if you could talk about what your patients have experienced as hydroxychloroquine became kind of the focus of some people's attention. And I, just for the listeners, I'm not saying that hydroxychloroquine treats COVID. Let's not, yeah. we're not going there. <laughs> but I'd love to hear the impact on what things have had for your patients. Yeah, it was pretty horrific um, in terms of 
uh, access to the medication and then the regulation around the, the the medication that some of my patients are still feeling. You know, so of course it's, yeah, it's not a, a, a treatment tool for COVID, um, but it was being misused. Um, and so the main impact my patients felt at the time was just access. They, they either couldn't get their medication or um, the pharmacies were restricting it. And so it got kind of difficult for us to prescribe. We had to, you know, document in very specific ways. And when the pharmacists were, were dispensing it, instead of giving people a 90-day supply, they were giving people 30-day supply, you know. And so this is, uh, was affecting compliance, of course, with medications. And we know from our study, from studies that if patients could have been doing well on their lupus for years and years, and then they stop their hydroxychloroquine, and about 50% of patients within six months will have some flare. And we, we observed that. So there was significant morbidity, I think, that our patients experienced. And then a lot of just anxiety, because now suddenly, because the drug was being misused or in combination with other drugs that we, would, we weren't ever using them together with, you know, these arrhythmias, some of these toxicities were being seen, and patients were who had been you know, doing very well on their medications, suddenly very fearful of that medication. And I think in a way it brought up important things for us to monitor toxicity, why, keep on our radar, but it also caused a lot of undue stress and anxiety for this, this kind of vulnerable patient population. So it was, it was a tough time for our patients. Um, thankfully, that seems to be correcting, you know, now. I imagine that the population that has lupus or has symptoms that could be lupus already feel somewhat disenfranchised uh, because people don't know the disease well and um, so they have they probably already face a lot of uh, emotions that way so. yeah absolutely you know and um, you know there's disparities in healthcare across the board but um, you know, particularly in lupus, lupus disproportionately also affects um, uh, African Americans, Afro Caribbeans. It's a much more common disease because of the complex genetics of it. So one in one in three hundred African Americans could have lupus, um, and um, you know, and so that just kind of added to the um, challenges faced across the board, but especially by by certain groups of patients. Mm-hmm. As I was preparing for this interview, mm -hmm. I ran across the term mesenteric vasculitis. Oh. What is that? <laughs> uh, well, I, I am not an, a vasculitis expert, but you get, you know, basically inflammation of the blood vessels in the mesentery that can present with um, abdominal pain from bowel ischemia, sometimes bowel perforation, um, symptoms of, uh, you know, uh, infl inflammation in the gut, so hematochesia, diarrhea. Um, it's not part of the classification criteria of lupus. It is, a, it is uh, there are other autoimmune diseases that can present as mesenteric vasculitis, um, but lupus has been reported to coincide with that, but it's very rare. I don't think I have, uh, I've seen a true case of that um, myself, but it's been reported in the literature. So if you, you know, I, there could be other reasons for bowel ischemia, I would say first before thinking of that in a lupus patient. The other uh, thing that came up that I had not heard about was neuropsychiatric lupus. And should we think of that or approach it differently than other forms of SLE we've been talking about? So that's an exceedingly challenging group of patients um, that can um, present with 
any variety of neuropsychiatric manifestations from um, mood disorder, you know, um, uh, manifestations of bipolar disorder, dementia, uh, and actually it's due to inflammation in their central nervous system. And it's remarkable in true patients with neuropsychiatric lupus, their mania, for example, uh, could respond to immunosuppression. Their dementia could get better. I mean, this is the best case scenario where you're actually, it's a true diagnosis, yeah. and they they respond. Those, those manifestations respond to immunosuppression. Okay. This is very rare, very hard. There's not a clear set of diagnostic criteria, and... Um, more often than not, it's not lupus. it's not neuropsychiatric lupus, um, and the testing that needs to be done to come to that conclusion is quite extensive. So, from your standpoint, if someone comes in, you know, and and they've had a, um, uh, you know, they're they're manic, um, you know, that has to still be managed from the psychiatric standpoint, um, and oftentimes we have to end up doing lumbar punctures or MR imaging involving colleagues in neurology, autoimmune neurology, to really make that diagnosis because it's again another very rare manifestation of a rare disease. Is it um, CSF-based diagnosis or? There's no diagnostic criteria. Okay. So some people, you know, it can be dementia, so there may not be a. Uh, inflammation in the the CSF that you can detect um, in other, but we often do pursue a CSF study um, to look for, you know, high uh, cell count pro protein um, in the CSF. But there isn't there isn't a gold standard, and that's very challenging. I I don't know if even though we've known each other for a long time, I don't know if I ever shared that before emergency medicine I started in psychiatry, mm -hmm. and so. Diseases that me people with mental illness presentations present with that are treatable outside of psychiatry are are really of interest to me, and so I, this is yeah this is fascinating. Yeah, right? it's absolutely. I mean, you know, generally speaking, if you give someone with a underlying mood disorder, for example, a lot of a lot of patients with uh, depression or anxiety, they don't tolerate steroids. I mean, it makes their underlying mood worse, right? But um, what I have read, and and in the rare patients that have neuropsychiatric lupus, you know, they get, they get uh, steroids and their mania goes away. You know, they, so it's a fascinating group of patients. But the challenge, I think, in any kind of study is um, getting making sure of that diagnosis right. because we don't have a defined set of criteria that everyone has agreed on. Um, and so, it's and hard. we see so many people who are depressed because they have symptoms that have gone undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. And even just labeling a diagnosis may result in improvement in their depression. Yeah. And, and so it would be hard to tease that Very out. Very hard to tease you know, out, but, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, Alex, I'm sure you've seen some of those folks, right, that they're just, they're despondent that their life is, is a bunch of symptoms that have no name. Yeah. I, you know, and I see also from, you know, you, you live that every day, you know, someone wants to know what's going on. And, um, you know, and I think pe patients want an answer. Um, but, you know, I, I try to caution them that, you know, I, lupus is not a diagnosis that you want, you know. Um, we have made a lot of advancements in the field in and, and are continuing to do better. But the drugs we use and uh, are still toxic, um, and wouldn't want to use them unless we really had to. And we have no cure, 
you know. So I know that patients want answers and, and they, they, they they want to get better, right? Um, but lupus is still a huge challenge for us in rheumatology and the medical community. And so if we can tell you you don't have lupus, you know, I think it's still good news, um, even if it means that the symptoms are unexplained. Um, one day we'll have a cure, and I'm optimistic about that, but it's not there yet. Uh, Uma, going back to something in the beginning, you mentioned that SLE disproportionately affects women, mm-hmm. nine to one. The presentations for men with lupus, are they the same, or do they present differently? Um, they they can be uh, they can be the same um so there isn't really like a male female phenotype i would say is is the general answer um men tend to be a little atypical um you know you they might be a little bit older at at presentation but there isn't a specific um phenotype and why it affects women versus more than men is a million dollar question likely a combination of genetics and hormones um, that we're still understanding. Mm-hmm. The, and the, the other thing I'll just mention about that too is, you know, lupus is one of these diseases that in pregnancy um, tends, pregnancy is not a good state for the lupus patients. Two thirds of patients with lupus flare in pregnancy. So if you, you know, I'm sure um, the obstetric patient in the ED is also a big cause for fear. Yeah. So if that obstetric patient also has lupus, you know, um, actually th- that patient, the odds of them having a flare, being in a flare, if they're coming to the ED with s- certain symptoms, you know, joint pain, rash, that lupus, lupus should rise to your, to your differential. Two thirds of patients with lupus will flare during pregnancy. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Speaking of another population, so pregnancy being one of them, what about children? Is it, Do you take care of children with lupus? I'm an adult rheumatologist. Okay. I mean, we did do pediatrics in training. There are um, there are child um, there are pediatric versions of lupus. So lupus can affect uh, uh, young children as well, um, and tends to carry through into uh, adulthood. Um, but it's not a, a group of patients I take care of. On a day to day, do you find that the patients who were diagnosed in childhood and extend into your adult practice are they different in some way than those who are diagnosed in adulthood? I think that if lupus is going to manifest in childhood, it is uh, often a more severe uh, form of the disease. Um, in some patients, there is a te- tendon. There is some patients. Thankfully, they go into kind of a state of quiescence when they go into adulthood, but they um, they do still need to be followed um, and and need to be transitioned from pediatric to adult practice. Fantastic. Um, on a totally separate note, I've seen several national surveys of different specialties, and rheumatology has consistently ranked among the top specialties for job satisfaction and happy physicians. Burnout's a huge issue in EM, and I was wondering if you could shed a little light on what what you think contributes to um, the protective uh, aspect of your practice and the things that give you the most satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, we are pretty happy people, um, and... um, I don't know if there's things that that unify us as as a group. Um, I think we are able to connect with patients across different age group. You know that we see patients. You know, I just said I didn't see pediatric patients, but I see young adults 
you know, it, into people in their in their 90s. So there's a lot of variety in our practice, even within even as a lupus expert, I see um, uh, a lot of variety within the disease itself. Um, we tend to be able to see patients longitudinally, and I think that's very rewarding for us. Um, and in the last decade and a half, there's been amazing advancements in, in therapeutics. So we're actually able to not just throw steroids at somebody and, and hope for the best, but we are ha- we have more targeted therapy, so we're able to see the impact of our treatment on patients. So I think that longitudinal care and um, the new uh, uh, drugs are, are helpful. And... Um, uh, you know, I, and I think we're an outpatient, you know, based predominantly practice. Um, and so there's, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say easier, but, you know, in terms of work-life integration as a woman in medicine with three kids, um, being able to come to work, you know, on a more defined schedule, not to say that that's not possible in emergency medicine, but for me personally, having a defined schedule with three very busy kids um is very helpful and important for for my um, uh, for my sanity. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think those are things that that contribute. I think that's really incredible. And I heard you say something earlier that you know you might interview a patient for an hour or spend a significant amount of time at the bedside, which I imagine is also uh, rewarding. And and I'm sure the patients feel a tremendous amount of gratitude for the the time you spend working with them? I, I think so. I mean, uh, by nature of our field and even just lupus, it affects so many different organs. So you do have to ask people about many different symptoms uh, because you have to. But because you do, I think we get the benefit from the patient of feeling heard. We have the time and then we also ask, and, oh, nobody asked me about all of these things all at once. And then they, they feel like they're, they're being... Uh, seen as a, a whole person, and we have to do that. That's the nature of our job, right? But because of that, um, the time and then the nature of our questioning, I think um, patients um, tend to feel heard uh, by their rheumatologist, which is great. It helps for the therapeutic relationship um, in particular, and it also helps when you have to tell the patient, I didn't figure it out, or I did figure it out. Um, and uh, that um, that is helpful overall. I mean, I think it's a great field, rheumatology. I'll put in a plug for us because there's not going to be enough of us. There already isn't enough of us, and the shortage will only continue. So I think for for our students and, and, and trainees out there that are, are looking and are interested in immunology and um, taking care of patients longitudinally with cool, uh, interesting diseases that still need further investigation, you know, rheumatology uh, should be on your radar. So that's my plug for, for our field on your platform. <laughs> we do have medical students listening. Good. And if your name is Elisa, you know that you were meant to be a rheumatologist. There you go. <laughs> we'll look for you, Elisa. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's summarize what we've talked about today. First, lupus is an incredibly challenging disease with essentially any presentation possibly being lupus. And at the same time, most situations are not going to be lupus. This condition will disproportionately affect women, particularly those of Afro-Caribbean descent. One study by Nagai from 2019, published in the Rheumatology International Journal, described the characteristics and risk factors for ED visits in patients with systemic lupus erythematosus and described the reasons for coming as related to infections, orthopedic issues, 
gastrointestinal symptoms, neurologic symptoms, cardiovascular complaints, allergic complaints, endocrine complaints like hyper or hypoglycemia, traumatic issues, and concern for lupus flare. So essentially, any presentation we would see in the general population could be seen in patients with lupus. If the patient has a known diagnosis of systemic lupus erythematosus, we need to consider complications of SLE, like pericarditis, serositis, etc. We should also keep in mind that their medications are very similar to patients with organ transplants, and that makes them vulnerable for infection. If your patient does not already have a diagnosis of lupus, but they have a pattern of symptoms that has you considering that diagnosis, that is to say they have constitutional symptoms such as fatigue, as well as body aches or myalgias, fever, weight loss, arthritis, rashes, vasculitic phenomena like Raynaud's, kidney disease, neurologic symptoms, thromboembolic disease, hematologic derangements, and this list keeps going. Consider helping your rheumatologist evaluate this patient downstream by obtaining an ANA, ideally by indirect immunofluorescence on the HEP2 substrate, CBC with differential, C-reactive protein, sedimentation rate, creatinine, urinalysis with microscopy, anti-double-stranded DNA, complements C3 and C4 were mentioned by Dr. Thanarajasingham, as well as CH50 I saw in the literature. Consider testing for antiphospholipid antibodies potentially as well. Getting these tests when the symptoms are at their worst or are flared may have better yield for your specialty teammates. With that said, they are unlikely to help you in the ED. Speaking of the ED, the primary role for the emergency department for this population of patients is to evaluate for dangerous conditions like pericarditis, endocarditis, MI, sepsis, septic joints, neuropsychiatric crises, and more. After ruling these conditions out, take time to help your patients feel heard and give reassurance that we really do care about their symptoms even if we can't give them a diagnosis in the ED. Talk to them if you feel comfortable and your tingly senses is flared that you might be suspicious this patient has lupus or a similar autoimmune condition or vasculitis. And then getting them specialty evaluation to further work this up is really helpful. In addition, there are some true crises that these patients, particularly those with lupus or antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, are susceptible to, and we need to keep that in mind. In particular, we talked about catastrophic antiphospholipid syndrome. I had never heard of this, but this is where thromboses occur in multiple small vessels throughout the body. This occurs in about 1% of patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. The majority of these patients in the literature that were diagnosed with CAPS or CAPS had it at the time they were diagnosed with antiphospholipid syndrome. The treatment of this condition involves, of course, anticoagulation, but also systemic glucocorticoids, and there's some discussion about IVIG and PLEX as also things to explore. This has an incredibly high mortality rate, and so we must be attuned to this potential life-threatening complication. Uma, thank you so much for all of your time and energy today. Do you have any final thoughts for our audience? I, you know, I think that uh, I think emergency med doctors have an incredibly difficult job, and I think that um, you know, you guys are joking a lot about you know not knowing and uh, you know what to do or having fear in your hearts about an, uh, a lupus patient. But I think 
that um, you all do a phenomenal job taking care of the people that come into uh, our patients that come into our division, uh, your your department, um, uh, by making sure that they're not sick, by making sure that they're not dying, by thinking about the common things being most common first, um, and and you save lives in that way, and we're we're grateful for that. And I often find that the patients that come to me from the emergency room here at Mayo um, are patients that need to be seen. So I think that you guys should give yourself more credit um, uh, than you are, um, uh, and. We wouldn't um, be able to practice our medicine, keep our patients alive without you guys, too. So we appreciate you. Well, that is a wrap for the November episode of Always on EM. Alex and I would like to wish everybody throughout the United States a very happy Thanksgiving. And to our listeners everywhere around the world, you are definitely among the many reasons we are very thankful this holiday season. Please check out the Trauma Cheers giveaway on Instagram at alwaysonem. Email us again at alwaysonem at gmail.com. And please don't forget to like, comment, and follow or subscribe to our show. Tell your colleagues about the show and come back mid-November for the next Grand Rounds release. Until then, keep on rising, everybody. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Balamkanda.